glowing gold light at the end of the tunnel is being satisfied with yourself and your work and your life at the end of every day. Welcome to Unleashing Your Great Work, a podcast about doing the work that matters the most to you. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Kroll, a cognitive psychologist, coach, author of the book, Great Work, and the creator of the Great Work Journals. Every week on this podcast, we're here asking the big questions. What is your great work? How do you find it? And why does it matter whether we do it? What does it actually take to do more of your great work without sacrificing everything else? And how does the world change when more people are doing more of the work that matters the most to them? Stay tuned for answers to these questions and so much more. Welcome everybody to Unleashing Your Great Work. I could not be more excited today to talk to Tara McMullen. She's a writer, a podcaster, and a producer. And for over 13 years, she studied small business owners, how they live, how they work, what influences them, and what they hope for the future. She's the author of What Works, a comprehensive framework to change the way we approach goal setting. The book challenges the lessons we've learned about goals and productivity through culture and proposes a radical shift, structuring our lives around practice rather than achievement. She's the host of What Works, a podcast about navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact, and she is the co-founder of Yellow House Media, a boutique podcast production company. Welcome to the podcast, Tara. Well, thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I'm thrilled to be here. Thrilled. I too am thrilled. So I have so many questions for you that I have to sort of contain myself by starting with where we always start. Tell us a little bit about your great work. Yeah. So my great work, it seems always revolves around the question, why do we do what we do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that is a question that has really, um, fascinated me since I think I was a little, little kid. Um, and it's, it has definitely shaped my work in many different ways over the years. It's what led me to study religion in college. It's Mm. what led me to exploring sort of the, the maker and design, uh, sphere when I was first getting started. It's what led me to thinking deeply about marketing and Mm. business and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. And um, now it's really uh, kind of inspiring me to think about sort of the future of work and how we can better know ourselves within the future of work, um, which is a large part of of what the book is about. And so the book really revolves around this question of why do we do the things that we do? Why do we believe the things that we believe? And how are those two things connected? So that's kind of how I summarize what my great work is. I like it. So, you know, I got my hands on the book, which I can't be more excited about. Uh, And anybody out there who's thinking, should I buy that book? Yes. Yes. The answer is you (laughs) should buy that book. It's, it's really good. But so I kind of know what you mean by why do we do what we do? Right. Mm -hmm. But how would you summarize the sort of perplexing situation we find ourselves in that you sort of explore in the book? I don't want to summarize it for you because I'm sure you'll do a much better job. (laughs) <laughs> well, um, <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, but <laughs> um, so the the perplexing nature of it is that different humans do 
different things for different reasons, mm-hmm. right? And part of what fascinates me about this and part of what makes it such a driving question in my life is what I have recently learned is my autism. And so I think through the world in a different way than a lot of people think through the world. And what a lot of that means is making sense of how other people are behaving because it Ah. largely doesn't make sense to me, right? or at least it doesn't make sense to me on that sort of just instinctual level that it does for many other people whose neurology kind of lends itself more to those to slightly easier social situations. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that's, I'm that's sort of always an at the ground level of how I'm approaching things. But where it comes to the book specifically, what I'm really what I was really interested in exploring was how so many of us relate to the idea of success, achievement, you know, moving up the ladder in different mm. ways. I am an anxious, chronic overachiever. Um, I've never, you know, seen a merit badge that I didn't want to earn or a trophy <laughs> that I didn't want to win, right? Yep, yep. I'm that kind of overachiever. And I know a lot of other people who are as well, but I also know a lot of other people who just think, oh, that sounds like a terrible way to live. Like my mm-hmm. husband. Mm-hmm. Totally is not that kind of person. <laughs> Um, and of course, there's a whole spectrum of people in between as well. Right. But I'm I'm really interested in sort of what makes that uh, spectrum of personality, spectrum of character, spectrum of reaction to the world, right? Um, possible. Mm-hmm. And what are all the different sort of cultural inputs, historical inputs, religious inputs, spiritual inputs? that we have coming in that then express themselves in so many different ways. And so what the heart of the book really is, is examining that from the perspective of why do we value what we value in terms of goals, Mm -hmm. planning, success, achievement, productivity, and how does that appear in different ways in our behavior And is that behavior and are those beliefs really serving us? Mm -hmm. And if not, how can we reconstruct a a system Mm -hmm. for our lives, a scaffolding for our work so Mm -hmm. that we can operate in systems that serve us rather than just sort of defaulting to the inputs that we have? Yeah. So I like that a lot. And I think What's interesting about it to me is sort of you have this ladder, climbing this ladder, which is a common Mm -hmm. metaphor, right? Like climbing the corporate ladder, like looking for more, always seeking more, more direct reports, more money, more prestige, more decision-making power. And using that as like a a way to sort of establish this default way that it's it's this pursuit of more. And if you're not Mm -hmm. in pursuit of more, then you're doing it wrong, right? Even the way we talk about the economy is it's like we're we're always moving for greater GDP. And if we have to have a recession to self-correct and whatever, I guess we can live with that for a year or two. And then it's back on the path for more, more, more. And what's interesting is even the people who aren't on the path, right, are in relationship with that. They're rejecting yes. that because that's the organizing principle that our lives are built on. If we sort of sit in this default space. 
which the vast majority of us do. I was recently mm-hmm. doing a keynote at the University of Toledo, and we were talking about how it might have felt to them all through college, or no, sorry, all through high school, that there was only one path mm-hmm. and everyone was on it. And now that you're here, they were starting, they were like freshmen, like you actually, it can be very overwhelming when you realize actually all y'all adults are just making it up as you go along. <laughs> and yeah. I, there is no path except that we then sort of close our eyes and pray for home and stay on the more, more, more path. So, but what's the alternative? Like, how can you create in your own life and in your own spheres? Like, what can you create for yourself if you reject that paradigm, if you leave the table, as it were? Yeah. I, well, so first off, I think that it's it's important to recognize that the striving for more, more, more seems to benefit us, right? Mm. It seems to meet our needs, help us feel like we have a purpose, that we feel like we're on a mission, feel like all these things that are psychologically satisfying to us or should be that are needs meeting, all that good stuff. However, yeah. We also know that people are lonely, mm-hmm. they're they're anxious, they're right. stressed out, mm-hmm. um, and they're in debt, right? Yeah. So really what happens in this process of striving for more, 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 more is that the system is turning us into a particular type of consumer. Right. And within that, that paradigm of consumption, uh, it is hard to feel satisfied with what you have um, and satisfied with what's around you and the people that are around you. And that's very deliberate, right? That's what keeps the system going. That's what fuels that GDP growth, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, fundamentally, that is kind of where that goes. Um, So in terms of uh, what alternatives there are, I think that awareness is really key. Mm -hmm. We realize that our striving is not for the benefit of us, but is for the benefit of others. Then we can say, okay, well, what, what might it look like if I worked in a way that benefited me? What would it look like if I were, if I lived in a way that benefited me? me? What if instead Mm -hmm. of my behaviors, my choices being directed by outside forces, I recognize that those outside forces were there, that they are Mm -hmm. real, that they make things difficult in a lot of ways. But what do I want within Mm -hmm. this system? Where do I want to explore within this system? Mm -hmm. And within that, then how can I meet my needs Mm -hmm. and be curious and explore and pursue growth in the way I want to be curious and explore and pursue growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the main sort of the crux of the book that I present as an alternative is this idea of valuing practice over achievement. Mm-hmm. Achievement is super future focused, right? It's always very outcome oriented. You're thinking about what's the next step and the next step and the next step. It very much is this striving for more kind of yeah. paradigm. And that's the structure in which we live our lives. Or as you, as you very astutely pointed out, it's the, the structure that we reject and mm-hmm. therefore are in relationship with 
also, yeah. right? right. Um, and so we need the alternative. And to me, the, this alternative is practice and practice is, ver- is very much about presence. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's very much about looking at the choices that you have right now in front of you and choosing the way you want to be in the world mm-hmm. that is and with the choices that you actually have. Um, and it's an opportunity to grow with each action that you take or to explore with each action that you take, as opposed to feeling like you don't grow, you don't get Mm. to the next place until that next achievement. And so that practice, the uh, thinking in terms of practice and and recognizing the power of habit and routine and process creates an environment in which we can be much more satisfied, right? We can, we can actually recognize, oh, this is what I have. Maybe this is what I don't have. These are the choices that I have. These are the choices I don't have. And from that place, it's less about hurtling yourself into the future, which is Mm. always, always, always going to have that kind of consumptive motivation behind it. And instead really easing into something that's more intentional, more aware, uh, and, and more present. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned in your story at the beginning that this was sort of your own experience was mm-hmm. as a as a high achiever as it were. So have you like is is this your story overall like are you reflecting your own journey in this book from future focused always focused on like more 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 into something more present? Like what's your story? Yeah. And so my story is woven throughout the whole book. It's Mm -hmm. very much um, a personal narrative as well as research and observation of hundreds of high achieving entrepreneurs and and independent workers over the years. But my story really is um, starting from this place of feeling like I always needed to be chasing that next goal. That's, you know, if straight A's were possible, then I was going to get straight A's. If getting first chair trombone in the orchestra was possible, then I was going to get first chair trombone. If um, <laughs> being the starting pitcher was possible, I was going to be the starting pitcher. Like it's, you know, from the mm-hmm. earliest age, these were the things that I defined myself by. So and why were those just, the things you know, that you defined yourself by? Because anything that felt possible for me to succeed at, I had to, like, I was, let me back up. I would only pursue things that Mm I felt like I could achieve a certain level at, Mm -hmm. and that certain level being the highest level Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) or the highest level, you know, at least in my local area or whatever it might be. And so um, things like music, grades, uh, sports to a degree, those were things that had always come easily to me. They were things that I enjoyed doing, um, but they were also things where I got a lot of praise. I got a lot of validation Mm -hmm. for those things. And so even before I started to think about my life in terms of how much revenue I could generate or how, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) prestigious this award or that award might be, um, I was starting to think in terms of an identity around those 
those accolades and that, that validation mm-hmm. of, no, you are useful. You do belong here. You're, you are worthy of being here. Um, because those are some of the big fears and questions that really kind of plagued my life. Um, so that's kind of where I was starting from in college. It was the same thing after college, even though I had just gone through like a deep depression, deep Mm. burnout. Um, as soon as I started to think about, okay, where do I go from here? You know, I was working at a retail job and I thought, well, I'll, I'll work, work my way up the ladder here. Right. Like Mm -hmm. it was very just whatever I was doing, I could do the next level higher and then the next level higher and then the next level higher. And it took me, oh yeah, go ahead. Well, I just want to name that I have read, I only got your book today, but I have read the first (laughs) chapter. So like, I sort of know what the punchline here is, but it feels very much like as you're like, pivoting around yourself and looking out to the next thing. It's like, you're out running something, mm-hmm. you know, like what were you out running your belief? It almost has to be your belief about yourself, some belief about yourself that you just can't stand sitting with or experiencing or grappling with or something because what, you know, cause it sounds really like, even when you're describing, it, it feels very forward, like out running feeling. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I was running from was the fear of not being worthy, not being good enough, not being, um, not, not being what I needed to be to kind of survive to be allowed to exist in the world. Yeah. To be allowed to To be viewed. Right. And yes, exactly. And can we just talk about the fact for a second (laughs) that, all of school is set up to create that outcome, right? Yeah. Like why would we have a first trombone, right? Why would we talk about the valedictorian from the day that you start ninth grade? Why is every like test shown for like who got the top grade? It's like, there's something so maniacal about this idea that children or humans at all are in competition with each other just to exist, mm-hmm. just to be valued when valuing and belonging and existing and being a part of our of our tribe and our pack is what we require to survive. Like it's very manipulative when you really start to see it. Yeah. Yeah. And in it it's like I said earlier, it kind of feeds yeah. this need, this right. economic and political need right. um, for people to fit into society in different places. And I think it should be said that that this is something that is particular to Western yeah. capitalist society. It is rooted in white supremacy. It's rooted in the white man's burden. It's rooted in colonialism. And that there have been many more systems where people don't rank each other, where they don't Mm -hmm. compete with each other, where it's not this constant battle for who's better than the other guy, right? But our culture is embedded with this deep, fear of inadequacy because we know that you have to 
compete at a certain level to have any sense of comfort in your life mm. at all. And I think that's, that's only becoming even more true yeah. today. I mean, yes, in so many ways, our quality of life obviously is better than it was a hundred years ago, certainly 200 yeah. years ago. And there are fewer ways to make a middle-class living with benefits and some paid time off mm. than there has been in the last hundred years. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that really just feeds this, uh, the sort of the cultural infrastructure with a real sense of precarity, right? So Mm. we do get these lessons from school from the earliest age. Who's better, you know, is Peter better than John is uh, Rose better than Sarah, but that's, also fueled by a very real need that we have, which is to survive in our political yeah. economy. So you're saying people perceive in their adult lives that they have to be the best in order to get the jobs, to get the promotions, and they turn around and then convey that cultural information to children. Yes. In the best way they know how and tell them how smart they are and how, right, which is and very good. Yeah, go ahead. And I'm not a mute. I do the same yeah. thing with my kid, right? I try really hard not to. <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard. But, but you know, she's they been love anxious. to hear it. Yeah. And she's been anxious about getting into college since she was 10. Oh, it's like <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like I'm glad you're thinking about this on one hand. And on uh-huh. the other hand, it's like, let's talk about something else. Yeah. Right. What else should we talk about? That's an excellent question. (laughs) So I think what else we should talk about is, well, there's a couple of different levels. There's sort of like the individual level. What should we talk Mm -hmm. about in terms of satisfying our own needs, our, our own curiosities? And then what should we talk about in terms of a more uh, collective approach to how we sure. make change? And I, I think those two things uh, are really important to do together. So from an individual perspective, I think that we need to be looking at the ways in which our values are hijacked on a regular basis. And so what I mean Mm -hmm. by that is that, you know, we exist in these different systems that want to turn everything into a quantitative uh, measurement, right? Whether Mm -hmm. it's existing on Twitter and seeing your likes or retweets or follower count go up or down. There's that. There's also, you know, performance management at work. There are the productivity apps that we use. There are the fitness trackers that we wear, right? Everything becomes quantified. And once everything becomes quantified, then nuance goes out the window, complexity Mm -hmm. goes out the window, and you know how to play that particular game. And when you're playing the game, you're not thinking critically about whether the rules of the game or the landscape of the game is something that you actually want to be playing in. Mm -hmm. So that's always the first place I start is like, where can we notice the ways in which the game has taken what we think we want, what we think we value, what we think uh, the future could look like for us and changed it, manipulated it to meet its needs even just being aware of it, making no other changes, but even just being aware of it, recognize it, 
recognizing it, I think is hugely empowering. So um, let me just yeah. pause you for a second, because I feel like an example here would be helpful because sure. I'm a hundred percent tracking. And I think, you know, it might feel like one of these things we nod along to, but really have we like, do we really know what we're saying? So what's an example? Like, let's say that, you know, you think you want the new Tesla and mm-hmm. the corner office, right? Mm-hmm. So let's assume that this person has had their values hijacked. What did they actually want? How did this happen? Like, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. I mean, in terms of those two examples, the Tesla is all about the marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And so marketing hijacks values very, very easily. It says you want to be on the cutting edge. It mm-hmm. says you want to be environmentally savvy. It mm-hmm. says you want to be seen uh, as having this particular status symbol, right? Yep. And those things may be rooted in real values. Obviously, mm-hmm. sustainability is a real value that yeah. many people hold. Um, being a sort of a first mover on technology mm-hmm. is an identity that a lot of people hold. I hold that. I mm-hmm. And it's an important one to me. I love being associated with, with understanding technology. Mm-hmm. Um, however, consuming a Tesla does not make you any one of those things, right? Uh It is an object that is used to stand in for those identities and those values. Um, And so that, and that's what marketing largely does, right? The same thing is true of the corner office. It's just Mm -hmm. that the marketing looks like career training. It looks Mm -hmm. like meetings with your HR person. It looks like meetings with your boss Mm -hmm. and the same stories and messages take your value for, um, for, uh, mastery maybe, or Mm -hmm. just even success broadly belonging. Exactly. And it hijacks it to say, well, if you do this, 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 and this, and you make this much money for the company and you reduce costs by this much, then you're, you'll eventually get into that C-suite. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what the marketing looks like on that side. But another example that I, like to use with this is fitness tracking. Yeah. Yes. I think, Talk to me about it. Yeah. So I hate those trackers. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a place where I'm so torn because I love my tracker and I also know how bad it can be for me. Uh-huh. So I've worn an Apple watch since the end of 2016. Um, and at the end of 2016, I was a pretty sedentary human being. Mm-hmm. Um, since then, I've run multiple 5Ks, a couple half marathons. I'm training for a 50K right now. So my life Whoa, has changed a lot. 50K? <laughs> yeah. That's lots and lots of K. It's lots and lots of Ks. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's how, that's a that's a big change in my life. And, you know, my Apple watch has, has been there for all of that. It's helped me manage that change. And there are times when it's led to really destructive behavior as well. So early on, right. When you're making progress on something like becoming a runner, having that motivation of a goal that is kind of regularly increasing and un- and seeing your baseline improve little bit by little bit by little bit mm-hmm. over months and months is hugely helpful for a lot of people certainly for me right mm-hmm. when it when it taps you on the wrist and says hey you're doing great today or like that was your longest run ever that is amazing right it's so <laughs> motivating 
Uh-huh. But here's what happens. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, pre-COVID, I was training for a marathon, um, which I did not run because of COVID. But um, (laughs) so I was training for a marathon. And that meant that my watch was sort of picking up on my baseline activity, getting higher and higher and higher, right? Because you kind of train over 16 weeks or longer, increasing your mileage every week. And Mm -hmm. so my watch is like, cool, you ran 20 miles last week. See if you can run 22 this week, or you collect, you know, you, you ran this speed, that speed, right? So it, it measures that baseline and then it keeps pushing you. Can you go a little higher? Can you go a little higher? And at some point that is not healthy anymore. Yes. Right. And (laughs) So there, there have been times, right, where I'm averaging three hours of exercise a day. And it's like, could you do three and a half? No. It's like, uh, no, no. <laughs> jerk, stop it. But what it, what it's doing there is hijacking mm. my ability to listen to my own body, my mm. ability to manage my own training. It's inserting a level of doubt when I have a a needed rest day or a Mm -hmm. deload week. And that is enough to just bubble up that little bit of anxiety that you're like, oh, am I, am I, is it okay that I'm like Mm -hmm. following my program and taking a day off? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happens in our lives too. Yeah. Well, I think it's a great example. And I also think like, it, it it sort of underlines what seems to be the solution that you found, which is like you, how can you anchor into your own values, mm-hmm. examine the systems around you, figure out who you are, and then view things appropriately because the Apple watch is a tool, right? right. It's just coded to add 10 per 3% a day or whatever it is, right? It's just following its coding and coding is neutral, right? But which is questionable, but let's (laughs) just, let's for now pretend that coding is neutral and that the tools that we choose are, are good insofar as we are actually choosing them. And we're not, my problem with the Apple watch is that it chose me. I too have worn an Apple watch since 2016. And I was like, stop it for at least three years. It was like, it's time to stand up. I'm like, you don't Mm -hmm. get to decide for me when I'm going to stand up. And I could not figure out how to turn it off. I like, it really almost broke me. It was like a whole thing. But my husband at the time was like, well, no, no not my husband at the time. My husband, who's still the same husband, comma, right. at the time that this happened, <laughs> was like, it's just a watch. Like, why are you letting it bother you like that? And I was like, I really did stop and think like, why am I? I, I am the one letting it harass me instead of just acknowledging it's neutral programming. And I think that what you're pointing to really is that we have so much default programming from an entire lifetime of being told that we are not enough. It is not like, and I'm not saying that from some kind of like, poor me with my tiny little like violin. I'm saying like our programming from school and corporate America, you're not, you don't have enough house, you don't have enough car, you don't have enough money, you don't, you should get that credit card so you can buy the things like the programming in the marketing, the programming in the school curriculum, the whole thing is designed to create a consumption bot, Mm -hmm. right? This is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. 
And if you haven't deprogrammed most of that, then your Apple Watch harasses you. If you have deprogrammed it, then your Apple Watch goes back to being a tool, which is like a lot to ask of the regular person in order to like feel good about themselves. <laughs> it is. It is. But yeah, I mean, you have hit the nail on the head. Coding programming is one of the metaphors that I use in the book. And I mm. think you know, one of the ways I talk about it is like, um, if you imagine that you are an iPhone with your particular values and your particular hardware and your particular, you know, mm -hmm. all of the things that are particular to your iPhone, it's like we're iPhones running Android systems, right? The, mm. the, the system isn't actually made for mm -hmm. the device that we right. are. Right. And, and it doesn't work, right? But right. we keep trying. We keep powering the thing up. We tr keep trying to make calls. It's mm. like, why isn't this working? <laughs> right. Why do I feel so bad? Yeah. Well, it's because you're running the wrong system. You're yeah. not running your system. You're running someone else's system, yes. a competing system. And that's a big problem. Obviously we need to run our own system. And so, yes, to the deprogramming, um, I also turned the notifications off on my watch this year. I've mm. always had most of the notifications off, but I turned yeah, all the activity same. notifications off and I still will feel driven by closing my rings many more yep, times yep. than We've I all should. Closed our rings. Yeah. I, I got to go for a walk around the block. I'll be right back. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of but the But <laughs> I don't get those taps on the wrist that make me feel bad anymore. Cause ah. I have, the, I had the exact same thing. And if we think about all of the, the ways in the rest of the world that we get tapped on the wrist to make us feel bad about something. Right. To direct our, but to help us improve. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to respond to Google? Wouldn't you like to respond to this email you got five days ago? No. Yeah. If I wanted to respond to it, I would have responded to it, jerk. I feel yes. like, yeah, I feel like so much of what you're saying is, is like spot on. And it's, it was at the core of my book too, which is called Great Work and is all about like, how can we kind of, it's almost like, this pretend thing that you can't really do. Like, I feel like you have described how do we deprogram? Like, how do we actually step-by-step step just get to base camp one where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm a human being. I am good. I am lovable. And I am here. We can, why are we here? Why are we on this planet actually, right? To love each other, to make cool things together, to maybe care for our planet and like, I don't know, live in synergy and or just repair it enough so that we don't like get thrown away by our planet, right? You know, like collectivism, like we're here to build things together, to have fun together, to enjoy the amazingness that happens when humans come together and try to accomplish things. And so if that's what we're trying to do, I've called all of that great work, right? Like artistic, mm -hmm. creative, scientific, parenting, like whatever it is that calls to you from the inside. If you can listen to that voice, sometimes without, you can sort of find your way into this little wormhole, come out the other side, blown away by what everybody else is still over there roboting about, you know, like mm -hmm. if you're done with your work, go do something else. 
I feel like I'm whispering from the, you know, <laughs> from the dark side, turn off your computer. And I feel like you're doing the same thing. So what would you say, you talked about it as practice instead of accomplishment, but just unpack that a little bit for us so that we can kind of know where we're headed when we buy your book and deprogram ourselves. Like, what are we really heading towards? What's the the glowing gold light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I would say the glowing gold light at the end of the tunnel is being satisfied with yourself Mm. and your work and your life at the end of every day. Uh That's, I mean, that's why wait to the end of your life where you're hoping you maybe had five years to travel after you (laughs) retirement, which I'm going to go ahead and put in air quotes because I don't, (laughs) I don't think that's really guaranteed anymore. No. Um, Yeah. So at the end of every day, I like that. Continue. Yeah. And satisfaction, being satisfied does not mean having fun all the time. It doesn't mean getting to do whatever you want to do, right? We don't live in that world where, and I don't know that most of us would even want to live in that world. I think most of us love a challenge. We like to figure out problems. Mm -hmm. What we don't like is to feel like we are constantly out of fuel. Right. And so to me, satisfaction is what comes when we have the resources to do what needs to be done and what we want to do in a day or Mm -hmm. in an hour or in a week or in a month or in a year, right? Mm -hmm. And so much of everything we've talked about so far really is designed to keep us running on fumes. Yeah. Right? Productivity guidance designed to keep us running on fumes. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff about, you know, networking, promotions, do this, do that, do it's all about keeping us running on fumes because when we're running on fumes, we're ma- way more likely to buy stuff, we're way less likely to make tr- quote unquote trouble at work and maybe mm-hmm. start to unionize our shop or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, ask for a raise. Um and so what is what will it take? for us to say at the end of the day, I am not running on fumes. I feel satisfied by what I've done Mm. and I feel like I'm ready to do it again tomorrow. Mm. That's what I'm looking for, for my life. That's what I want for everyone. Recognizing that we are all coming to what I think is sort of the work of being a human in this world mm-hmm. with a different bucket of resources, a different capacity for all of that and different needs that need to be met. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously some of us have a leg up on that. Some of us have major headwinds slowing us down. Right. But I do believe that if we can shift the way we are perceiving the, how we move through the world and how we're showing up and perceive changing how we perceive even the idea of what do we say yes to? What do we say no to? Yeah. How do I change my, my attitude or my relationship to this thing or the other thing that everyone can achieve some level of that satisfaction, some knowing that our resources are well spent on what we do during the day. Um, it might be harder for some than others, obviously, but I, I do think that it is, it's possible and that I think we owe it to each other to start figuring that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. 
Well, honestly, I could talk to you about this for the next <laughs> 16 years, but we have to keep this podcast relatively short. So I would love for people to hear a little bit about you because you are multifaceted from what I can tell. This book just <laughs> came out, um, What Works. So obviously we want to buy that book, but how can people get to know you or work with you or have you come speak or whatever it is you're doing? Yeah, so um, I produce a podcast every week called What Works. Yes. Same title is the book. The yep. podcast is probably the best way to get to know me. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the episodes that I've put out this year kind of touch on themes from the book, but I don't think that there's they're not like there's not a ton of overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you like the book or you like what I've talked about today, the podcast is a great place to go. Um, I also release the podcast as a newsletter. So as written articles and essays oh, cool. every week. Um, and you can find that at explorewhatworks.com slash weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, the book. Yep. And then uh, the other way that I work with people is as a podcast producer with my husband over at Yellow House Media. Um, Mm -hmm. and we're all about helping people with something to say or questions to ask, produce standout podcasts. Um, so that's the, that's the bulk of my work. Love it. And we will put all of those links for sure. Also in podcast show notes so that they don't have to remember they can just click. I want to thank you so very much for your time today. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I can't wait to read the rest of your book and listen to your podcast. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you. Hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, you've got to check out the Great Work Community. The Great Work Community is where change-making entrepreneurs make drama-free progress together. Come on over for a co-working, accountability, coaching, and just-in-time courses. Check out the Great Work Community. The link is in the show notes. Thanks for listening today to Unleashing Your Great Work. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. And make sure you check out my book, Great Work, Do What Matters Most Without Sacrificing Everything Else. It's available everywhere you get books. See you next time on Unleashing Your Great Work.